This information is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is offered with the understanding that the presenters are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert advice is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought. Well, it is that time. It is 6 o'clock. I had to wait for it to turn. I am James Orr, real estate broker, real estate investor, based out of Northern Colorado. Technically, I'm in Loveland right now. Welcome, everyone. I, I think that we are going to see a significant drop in attendance because of weather tonight. But that's okay. I am recording it. We'll see if it gets posted. See how it goes. Tonight, we're doing a very special class. We are doing 10 house hacking tips and tricks for real estate investors. And I will tell you all about why Brian is not here in a moment. But first, upcoming classes. Upcoming classes. So this week, we're doing uh, 10 house hacking tips and tricks for real estate investors. Next week, if you happen to show up, maybe the weather will be a little colder. See a few more people showing up. Uh, Next week, we are doing... 10 things I wish I knew before starting to invest in real estate. That's sort of like the class of, man, it would be helpful if I had realized this 15 years ago, 25 years ago, whenever it was that I started investing in real estate. That would have been helpful to know at the time. So I'll do uh, my best 10 things for that. Um, I'm not sure if you guys realize this, but uh, sometimes I don't prepare class until like the hour before. So, but I know that class is going to be amazing. I just got to think of some things to talk about. I'm sure there's plenty. Then the class after that, March 17th, eight money-saving, risk-reducing real estate investor insurance tips. I didn't quite think I'd get to 10 on that one. Might not get to eight, but uh, I have a feeling I will uh, share with you uh, eight things. Yep, I do see you. Trina, got you on the chat thing. Um, The next class on March 24th, I assume you guys can hear me. If you guys can't hear me, let me know. Although, how would you tell me? I guess. Okay, you guys can hear me. That's good. Thanks, Carlos. Uh, so uh, the next class on March 24th, wait. Before you make that offer, these are all the things that you should know before you actually submit an offer on a property. Uh, that's going to be a good class, I think. Again, haven't made it yet, but I think it's going to be really amazing. You'll notice there's some like new classes coming up it's but they're like sort of similar classes reframed and compiled into different stuff i mean after a while it's i mean if you've gone through all 200 episodes of the podcast you know like the majority of what we've taught at this point so it's all good uh on march 31st march has like five classes it's actually a pretty crazy month for classes uh the the class is called an alternative to cash flow saving money with rental properties you know, I think a lot of people think that they're investing in rental properties for the cash flow portion of it. But in markets like Northern Colorado, where it's really hard to make properties cash flow, I will demonstrate to you why, even if you don't have positive cash flow, rental properties could be a really interesting way for you to save money, actually, like acquire a chunk of change that you can then convert to whatever other investments you want. You can you know, use it to buy better cash flowing properties or put more down or buy stocks or buy bonds or invest in commodities or buy business or whatever you want to do for um, converting it to that point. It, it actually is a super interesting way to use it as a savings vehicle. And so I'll show you all the math behind that. It'll be a pretty interesting class. 
And then this is actually really interesting. So on April 7th, I created a brand new term, a brand new concept. I created a whole new reporting system. And um, I'm trying to think, I did some new charts, but I have some other charts on the list. Hopefully I'll be able to get to them before April 7th. Uh, But there's uh, this whole new concept of uh, R-O-T-N-E-Q plus R. So if you remember from before, we talked about this concept of return on equity. It's like the the return you're getting if you could sell your properties and, and take that money and invest it somewhere else. So, so the thinking is you look at your return on equity and you see what the return you're getting on the equity you have in your property. And you compare that to, well, if I took that money and I invested in stocks or invested in bonds or invested in something else, although uh, Warren Buffett just came out and basically said stocks are dead. I'm sorry, bonds are dead. I take that back. It's not stocks. Uh, but he basically, you take this idea of return on equity and you compare it to other investments you can make in anything else. And it's a way for you to compare, okay, this is the return I'm getting on the real estate I own based on how much equity I have in the property, which is what you could, in theory, walk away with and then use to invest somewhere else. But really, that's not the number. And, and it's really crazy because the difference between just regular return on equity, how we calculate it, and my new R-O-T-N-E-Q plus R, which stands for return on true net equity quadrant plus reserves. It's the idea of how much you'd walk away with after all your transaction costs, after all of your taxes, after all of your depreciation recapture. It's the true net equity you have on a property. And then what return you're getting on that number, which is really a much better number to use to compare if you took that same amount of money and you bought another investment like stocks or bonds or commodities or a business or whatever else you're buying. And so I created this whole new chart and this whole new tool for being able to evaluate your portfolio and say, this is how much my true net equity is after all my expenses, sales costs, depreciation recapture, you know, um, taxes, capital gains, taxes, you know, all that stuff. And you find out how much money you really walk away with. And then you can see what return you're getting on that is, and then decide, should I sell my property? And so that's really what it comes down to. Should I sell my rental? Well, now I have a brand new tool that I'm going to be showing you on April 7th that will help you evaluate whether or not you should sell that rental. And it's pretty interesting. It's, it's very different than what I think a lot of people would think. So that's a class you haven't seen before because it's brand new. I just made it. And if you don't like the classes that I've got scheduled to teach, I got great news for you. You can suggest a different class. <laughs> you can say, hey, James, I don't like what you're teaching. Maybe maybe you could go and teach a little something else. Maybe you could teach something on this. Maybe you could teach a little something on this. I'm open to suggestions at this point. You know, for the first 200 classes or 300 classes, I don't even know how many we've taught at this point. I've been teaching classes since 2003. Uh, but after a while, I, I, I run out of ideas on <laughs> classes to teach. I got to come up with new stuff. And so you get stuff like, uh, I don't know, 10 house stacking tips and tricks for real estate investors. So if you don't like what I'm teaching, please do go on to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash suggest and suggest a class, <laughs> suggest something different. Vote on someone, uh, a class that someone else has suggested and we'll go from there. All right, so if you would, please do an introduction. i uh, use the chat window. Uh, switch it over from all panelists. You'll see like right where you're about to type and introduce yourself. Uh, switch it over from all panelists to 
all panelists and attendees. That way other people can see that it's more than just me here speaking to myself. Although attendance is low tonight. I think it's partially because of weather. It's like, I don't know, 70 degrees outside or something ridiculous. Uh, so if you guys would, please do uh, introduce yourselves on there. Uh, who are you and where are you from? And then what is your best tip for house hacking? Because maybe maybe I'm missing the tip that you think is awesome. And uh, maybe I'll have to add that to the presentation next time I do it. So if you all would do that, that'd be amazing. And while you're doing that, I will tell you a story. So uh, rewind in time till Monday night. Actually, it was Monday afternoon. Monday afternoon, I, uh, I call up Brian. I say, hey, I, I, need, uh, I need your help with something. Uh, I, need, I need you to help me come up with 10 house hacking tips and tricks. And, uh, and, and he says, okay, I'll, I'll help you come up with this. Because Brian, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but a lot of times when Brian prepares the class, Brian's really good at um, reaching out to other people and asking for like advice and opinions and everything like that. Then he gathers it and he puts it through his own filter and then he teaches his own stuff. But he does get feedback from people. He, like, he likes to get like... Uh, I don't know, like input from other people. Uh, me, first time Brian sees my presentations, you know, 99% of the time is when I actually teach it in class because I don't call to get feedback, which is probably a bad thing. And honestly, there's probably a lesson there for those of you that are kind of paying attention about uh, what you should be doing. You should probably be seeking feedback from other people. So yeah, Brian usually gets feedback from not just me, but other people as well on what he teaches in class, which is why his classes are amazing. Uh, if you go listen to him. So I call up Brian on Monday and I say, hey, Brian, I, I need help with uh, coming up with 10 house hacking tips. And uh, it's sort of a joke, sort of for real. I didn't, I mean, I, I would be interested in hearing kind of some of his tips, but I wasn't like, I didn't, I had 10 already. <laughs> um, so I basically said, okay, Brian, so why don't you come over tonight um, and we'll do hot tub. So uh, he comes over and we do three hours, a three hour session to come up with all of this information in tonight's class for you three full hours in 104 degree hot tub temperature. And Brian got out at the end after being in a hot tub for three hours. And he was like steaming, like, you know, the, the lights from the, it was dark out at seven 30. Uh, by the time we got out, it was like 10 30, but like he was steaming and everything. I was thinking I'd like, you know, go take one of those uh, lemons and squeeze it on him and, you know, kind of like dip the butter thing and dip it on him because he was like lobster fried. He was so toasty after being in the hot tub at 104 degrees for three hours. Um, but the good news is, even though he's a lobster, he, uh, he has helped us with uh, the stuff for class tonight. Uh, and and <laughs> I'm probably throwing him under the bus uh, because uh, he got all lobsterfied and is not, not feeling well. He was unable to make class tonight. <laughs> and I think part of it might be the hot tub. I think we overcooked him. I think he has become a, a lobster with the lemon and the butter and all that other stuff. So he's like totally bad. So anyway, so anyway, that's, uh, that's why Brian is not here, but Brian is here in spirit because he gave us his input on some stuff and he came up with some interesting ones that I did not have on my list. So it's, uh, it's definitely there. Let me just read through these, make sure there's no craziness because I don't have Brian to read through stuff for me. Um, Airbnb. Yep. Airbnb is a good one. Yep. Oh, I didn't know you're from Alaska. That's great. Have roommate, make sure you can get along with the person. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. Uh, house I follow James. Yep. So the house was kind of still renting here. No advice. Yep. That sounds good. Never house hacked. Although Dwayne says my story about Brian was getting weird. I didn't think it was that weird. I, I, that was pretty PG. Um, Airbnb rooms in the summer if you don't do it all year. Yeah, makes sense. 
So we do typically publish these to the podcast. Uh, you can go to the Nomad Real Estate Investing Podcast, search for it in your favorite, you know, whatever it is. Although if you're listening to this recording, I mean, you probably already found it. Um, unless it's a video on the website. Then you go to Nomad Real Estate Investing Podcast or whatever your favorite podcast thing is, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Tune in. Got about, I don't know, a bunch of episodes up there. All right, so here goes class. 10 house hacking tips and tricks for real estate investors. Uh, before we get to the tips, I need to clarify something because I think uh, even Brian, this is not this is not Monday. When was this? Oh, I think this was last week in class. Brian, maybe it wasn't last week in class. I think it was last week in class. Brian actually um, was sort of like mixing and matching house hacking and nomad, and they are distinctly different. So I'm going to cover what the difference is between house hacking and nomad on a single slide. So house hacking, for those that don't know, is when you rent out part of the property that you're living in. So for example, you go buy a duplex and you live in one side and you rent out the other half of the duplex to tenants. Could be a family, could be an individual person, it doesn't really matter. Um, so you rent out part of the property that you live in. If you have a duplex, a triplex, you are living in one, you're renting out the other two. You could be a fourplex where you're living in one and renting out the other three. It could also be where you are um, a duplex where you live in one side, someone else lives in the other and you get roommates. So it, it, there's no distinction there. That's all house hacking. Whenever you get extra income from your property, usually by renting out part of it or renting it out during different periods of time, like an Airbnb sort of thing, uh, that is considered house hacking. So it could be duplex, triplex, fourplex. It's not usually five units or more because you can't get owner-occupant financing on those. You're not required to live in one of the units, although you could, although it'd be weird. Um, so we don't usually consider five units and above. There are different types of financing, different types of properties. That's why we don't do five units and above. Um, and then it could be single family homes with roommates. It could be single family home where you put a RV in your yard or in your backyard, or, um, you know, you rent out the garage or you rent out a workshop or anything like that. So those are all, um, kind of related ideas to house hacking. And then short-term rentals would also be included in house hacking. If you are, you know, willing to rent out a bedroom or your whole place, if you go on vacation, like Andrew suggested, or something like that, those would all be considered examples of house hacking. So uh, the, the idea is you have to live in the property and then you rent out another part of the property. That's kind of the definition of it. Nomad, on the other hand, is very specific. It's like a sequentially buying of properties where you own or occupy them. So you buy a property as an owner occupant. Uh, you live in the property for a year. Now, during this time, you can overlap and be house hacking. So uh, you can, they're not mutually exclusive. It's not like you either house hack or you nomad. It's you can house hack and you can be nomading at the same time. In fact, if you ever, anyone has listened to any of the like interviews, uh, specifically the one I'm thinking of is the one with Mary. Um, I think it's called like, I don't remember now. Something, 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 something amazing. Anyone remembers the title for Mary's podcast episode? Um, it's really, really good. And she talks about how she's both nomading and house hacking with roommates. So you buy, basically buy a house as an owner-occupant. You move in there. You live there for a year. And during that year, you can house hack. You can rent out to neighbors. You know, you can have roommates. You can rent out an RV. You can Airbnb while you're there. You can, you know, it can be a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. So all of those things do apply. It doesn't have to be, though. You don't have to have roommates in order for a nomad to be existing. You can live there by yourself in a single family home, and that still counts. Then at the end of the year, and it's a year because we, the lender requires you stay in the property for a year. Then you buy a new home and you convert the previous one, the one that you moved out of, to a rental. So you keep that property instead of selling it. 
Um, and then you're able to acquire rental properties that way. So you buy property, convert the previous to rental, and then you repeat this process as many times as you want. If you want to acquire two rentals, that's how you do it. If you want to require 10, you can do 10. If you want to do 20, you can do 20. Whatever it is that you want to do, uh, you could do it that way. And that's the difference between house hacking and nomad. So there is a distinction for those that don't know. So I'm going to go through all 10 on one slide, and then I've got detailed information on each of them, but I'm going to run through just so you have a like overview. This is sort of like the uh, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So I'll, I'll end the presentation with this slide again, uh, but I won't go through the make you do it once at, once at a time. Okay, number one, uh, use an appropriate lease and house rules. So the lease you use for regular tenants you know, renting a property that you don't occupy part of it is different than the lease you would use if you were renting a property uh, as a house hacker. And so we have a special attorney prepared lease. I'll talk to you about that and make sure you have house rules. So if you're living in there in a property, you want to make sure that you have written rules that people who live with you follow. So we'll talk about that. Uh, number two, maximize cash flow. You know, I, I think the presumption is if someone is going to be house hacking, they're trying to get extra income from the property they're living in. Maybe you should look at all of the ways to improve your cash flow from that property. And so we did a whole workshop class, and I'll kind of hit on that here very briefly. But we talked about all the different ways to reduce expenses and to increase income, which will maximize your cash flow. Uh, number three, the like when you are searching for properties, there are ways for you to improve your ability to find ideal house hacking type properties or mostly ideal, except, you know, you're willing to make trade-offs for other reasons. So we'll talk about searching for properties and selecting different properties. So that's tip number three. Uh, I think there are a lot of people that they house hack where they don't run their numbers. They don't use a spreadsheet. They don't, you know, enter their stuff in REFP or, or whatever they're doing. And, uh, and we're going to talk about the importance of analyzing your deals and realizing, you know, some of the things that might change when you analyze your deals. We'll talk about that a little bit. And just coming off some of our asset protection stuff, uh, you'll remember that you probably want to maximize your insurance when you are house hacking. So you want to get the proper type of insurance because it's not just you living there. It's not just an owner-occupant type of insurance. Uh, you do have tenants in the property. And you probably should also maximize your car insurance policy because now you have assets to lose, especially income properties. And you probably want to get an umbrella policy as we talked about in the asset protection class. So I'll hit on some of those on that slide. Uh, comply with laws. So there are, unfortunately... A lot of folks out there that are just kind of like doing it their own way. They're not agreeing to abide by the rules and regulations. And they're just sort of like, yeah, no one cares. No one's going to catch me. I don't think that's true. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, specifically for Collins uh, and how some of the laws around there are going to impact you. Health and safety. There's a whole bunch of stuff related to health and safety, especially if you're going to be living with people in a property and you're going to be renting out bedrooms and stuff. We will definitely talk about some tips with it related to that. Uh, optimizing financing. So we'll talk about some of the uh, some of the ways to optimize your financing when you're doing house hacking. That's a whole slide on that stuff, um, including a section on. I believe I have a section in there about uh, debt to income ratio. I had to I had to dig in really deep. I I don't know if you guys have been getting my emails, but I get uh, I, I sent out a couple of brand new charts I've been making. The I improved the uh, the chart for the minimum income required in order to do your real estate investing strategy. And then I had a new chart for debt to income ratio. And apparently I had a very small math error in how I was calculating the minimum income required um, for doing the entire strategy. And it has to do with 
uh, properties actually change whether they're in the numerator or denominator when you're doing this calculation, depending on whether they have positive cash flow or not. And before I was just taking the aggregate number and using that aggregate number. And it actually, if you break out each individual property, the number can be slightly different. And so we'll talk about that a little bit and repeat the process via Nomad. So uh, one of the tips for house hacking is you'll only have one property. We may want to consider doing more. We'll talk about that. Uh, pay your taxes. You know, don't try to like say, hey, you pay me $500 under the table. There are some compelling reasons besides it being illegal. There are some compelling reasons for you to pay your taxes. We'll talk about those. And then I have two bonus ones because I came up with 12 and I arbitrarily picked 10 before I actually write the class presentation. So guess what? There were 12 tips for uh, house hacking and uh, that's what you'll see tonight. So uh, another one is on tenant selection. I think that's what it says beneath this image because my... My video is showing up right there. And so tenant selection is another bonus one about how you can select tenants. We'll talk about fair housing and we'll talk about something special for uh, a very small subgroup of house hackers, not every house hacker. And we'll talk about that. And then a bonus about upgraded finishes and furnishings uh, for house hackers there. So that is the outline for tonight. I do not think it will be full two hours, but we'll see. Maybe you've got questions. I mean, I probably had a full two hours worth of your questions last week when we did Nomad Ask Me Anything. Do you guys like Nomad Ask Me Anything? Would you like to ask me anything format? Uh, if you could, in the chat window, give me some feedback on that because I, I wonder sometimes if you guys prefer more Q&A classes than, I don't know, like me lecturing for two hour type things. I've, uh, I've, I've occasionally not prepared for a class, got really busy during the day and I'd show up and just answer everyone's questions for two hours, which uh, people tend to like. Well, I guess two people like the Ask Me Anything stuff, so maybe we'll do more. Oh, three people loved it. Okay. Both are good and important. There, Car Carlos is trying to, like, get on my good side. He's like the teacher's pet trying to give me a, an apple or something like that. He says, oh, I love both those things. So, yeah, Andrew says you're good, too. Uh, okay, cool. Ann says liked it. Okay, cool. So, uh, use an appropriate lease. So, you can't use a regular lease. Uh, you can. It's You shouldn't, though. So please don't use just a regular old lease in order to lease out to your roommates. You and and by the way, you need a lease. So if you're if you're thinking, oh, I don't need a lease, I'm just gonna have roommates and kind of wing it. Oh, that's a really bad idea. So number one, you need a lease, and number two, you probably need an appropriate lease uh, for stuff. Now, if you're doing if you're house hacking, because there's kind of like two different schools of house hacking. There's a roommate school, and then there's a duplex, triplex, fourplex school, which they're different in my mind, at least for the leases. Because if you're renting a property, you're, you bought a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex, you're living in one of the units and you have tenants in the other units or the other units if you're doing a triplex or fourplex, that is a very different situation, a very different lease in my mind than the one you would use if you had roommates. So that one is much more similar to one you might use if you just bought a single family home and you rented it out or if you had a, you know, eightplex or something like that and you were just renting it out. So those leases are probably what you're used to seeing and you know, save maybe like a phrase in there about, you know, how you deal with lawn care for a duplex uh, or triplex or fourplex. I mean, once you start getting above, it's it's hard to have a triplex or a fourplex where you have your tenants take care of the landscape. You can, you can have one of them who's in charge of it. But like for duplexes, it I, I would say most of the time you are having tenants take care of the landscaping on the property. Whereas as you get up in the units, you tend to have to take on that responsibility as a landlord, like for larger buildings, five units and above, definitely. Uh, but probably fourplex too is kind of another weird one. 
So you'll want to have special provisions in there to handle those types of situations. Who does what maintenance around a property uh, because it's not a single family home. And, and there are some subtle differences between those. Maybe you should do a class on that. Although I think Brian covers a lot of it in his, uh, maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't do it in the apartment one. Okay, so uh, for the duplex, triplex, fourplex, I just talked about that. Use a typical lease with maybe some additional provisions for unique aspects of your units, like snow removal or shared yard or whatever it is that's unique to your particular situation. Um, so that's what you'd use for the duplex, triplex, fourplex. However, if you're leasing to roommates, you're going to want to have a very specific roommate lease. And it addresses what areas they have access to, what areas they are allowed to go in, what their responsibilities are, how utilities are handled, all of that stuff that is very specific to having roommates that they have to comply with house rules. And then you need to have house rules. Maybe you write them into your lease. Maybe you have a separate document and then reference them from the lease. It's really up to you as to how you want to handle that. But a tip for those of you that are house hacking, you need to have those special documents in place. Um, and then just as like a side tip, and this is not applied to everybody, but if you have bought or sold a house with me recently in the last year or so, or if you know, you're just outside of that, let me know. And I'm, I'm sure I hook you up, but uh, we have a specific roommate lease that the attorney has prepared. So it's like my $6,000 lease that we had an attorney go back through and make adjustments to it for roommate situations. So we have that. I, what I don't have, which I probably should kind of come up with, and maybe I can ask some of my house hacking people um, to share their house rules. Although house rules are, I'm sure you guys can find an example of them online. But if you guys need an example or something like that, let me know. Maybe I'll do a, a Google search or something. So uh, yeah, you need house rules. And if you need that lease, if you're a client of mine who bought or sold a house with me, a real estate broker, uh, you can reach out to me and I will give you a copy of our attorney prepared one. You still need to have your own attorney review it and make sure that it's good for you in your specific situation, but at least it'll save you some money. And I'm happy to tell you the attorneys we had, because we've had it reviewed by multiple attorneys. So happy to tell you the attorneys we've had review it and they've already seen it. So maybe they only will charge you a very small amount of money to review it and, or they'll say, Hey, it's good. I, I did this. I'm the one that made the change for James. So uh, you, you can go ahead and use it, but I would not use it without having your own attorney look at it. Okay. Any questions on the lease stuff? That's tip number one. You have to have different leases. I'm going to assume no questions unless someone speaks up. All right, so maximize cash flow. So my presumption, the experience I've seen for, and I should, oh, I should also tell you this. I always believe, as I said at the beginning of the asset protection class, you have a right to know who is teaching your class. You have a right to know what their level of experience is where they're coming from. And you probably shouldn't take advice, especially about asset protection stuff from a free online webinar that you found here. Even though we've got great information, we raise your awareness and you, now you know what to talk to your attorney about. Don't go follow that advice blindly. So in, to be completely transparent with you, I don't think I've ever had a paid roommate. I don't think I've ever, well, in the military, but I wasn't like the landlord in that situation. So you should know that I don't personally house hack. Um, I've been married for going on 26 years. Um, and so there's no house hacking in my history. Um, so realize that, and I'm sharing with you information I've gathered from clients and from other sources, you know, having been doing this for, it seems like forever now, since 2003 is when we started teaching classes. So a while. So just realize I've not house hacked. Uh, so anyway, 
the reason why I think most people house hack from what I've seen clients and stuff like that is most people are looking to use house hacking as a way to make extra money. Um, in theory, in a magical world, you kind of wave your magic wand and everything happens for you. You would find that you can actually cover all of the expenses on your property and live for free, maybe even make some money when you're house hacking. It's the, the math around here is really hard to make that work. It can be done, uh, but it, it takes exceptional property. It takes usually some exceptional stuff going on. And I'll, I'll share with you some of the numbers when we talk about analyzing deals. I think that's the section I cover that. But realize that um, most people are trying to maximize their income from the property while they're living there and try to get some extra income. Maybe they're trying to use it to save up their down payment to buy their next property. Maybe they're using it to live on and supplement. Maybe they don't want to work as much, you know, but most of the people are trying to do that. So if you are trying to increase your income by living in a property, and that's why you're house hacking, then you really should go through that class we taught. I think it was earlier this year. It's like a month ago. And during that class, I did a workshop where you pick a property in your mind that you print out the, I don't know, four page worksheets that we had and you put the property address on top. And then I walk you through every different way that I have come up with for minimizing all of the expenses on your property. So because cash flow is made up of your income on the property and minus your expenses. So we, we go through and we try to minimize all of your expenses. We'll talk about all the different expenses and, and how we can minimize those. And we go through very methodically and do every single way that I could possibly think of. And I, I used to actually, I, I used to offer that as a, a money, like a guarantee, like basically the, the lowest monthly payment when you buy a property guarantee and then a maximum cash flow guarantee. And I used to offer people, I don't do it anymore, but they'd be able to come to me. And if they had something that was not on my list, I would pay them money. Um, in order to do that. And so this is that list that I've accumulated over all that time. And so it goes through and it shows you how to minimize all your expenses on a property and then how to maximize all of your income on a property, all the different ways. And some of them are conflicting. You can't use all of them. Just one of them's like do this and the other ones do the exact opposite. And sometimes that actually is better for you. So, um, but we have the worksheet, we have the class recording. If you go to the real estate financial planner, how to improve cash flow workshop, just search for that on there. And that will walk you through the worksheet. So pick a property, pick the one you're doing your house hack on and methodically go through and optimize for cash flow. You know, try to decrease all your expenses and improve your cash flow on it. So uh, instead of teaching a full two hour class within a probably hour and a half class or hour class, whatever this is going to be, uh, then I, rather than do that, I just told you, go watch the two hour class I already have on that because it's amazing stuff. And I can't reteach, you know, five, two hour classes in this one, one particular presentation. And you guys have access to that on both the podcast and the website. Any questions on maximizing cash flow before I move on to the next stuff? You know, this is the downside of teaching via webinar is that you don't get the interaction. I can't like scan the room, look in your eyes and see if A, you're asleep or B, you're getting what I'm talking about or you're distracted by your phone or whatever it is. You don't get that feedback. So it's, it's kind of tricky. It's, it's one of the complaints Brian has about teaching the webinars, which is why he wants to go back in person and why as an introvert, I like doing this. But you know, this is one of the downsides. I totally agree. Yeah, see, Hunter's not sleeping. He's awake. He's the only one though. Okay, so let's go talk about property uh, search and selection. And, and this, this slide in particular, I think has some tips that you might not find anywhere else. I, I think most of the other slides, well, I can't say that either. Some of the other slides you could have gotten from anyone. I mean, they're like some common sense ones. And then some stuff on there, like if you dig into the maximizing cash flow, there's some things on that checklist that no one else is talking about. So I know there's some really good stuff there, but 
on this particular slide, there's some stuff that you probably won't get from other places. So uh, if you're interested in really doing house hacking, uh, this is kind of the time to wake up. There you go. Oh, so Trina says she's, she's awake too. So, so there's two parts to finding the ideal property. There's the search component where you're actually using the MLS in order to try to identify properties that would make good house hacking properties. And then there's the like, okay, I've decided I want to buy this property. And so that's sort of the selection part of it, of picking the property that you're going to buy. And I separated them out into two slides because I thought they were separate. They were different enough that I wanted to make. I didn't want the text to be really, really small, but I actually thought that they were differentiated in their kind of like how they break down. All right, so let's talk about searching for properties. So if you think about it, house hacking is relatively unique compared to some other uh, investing strategies in that you're trying to find a setup that is conducive for you to having roommates or having like, a, you know, an ideal Airbnb situation or something like that. So I think you need to know what you're looking for, or maybe it's a range of what you're looking for. Like I would do Airbnb or I would do the roommates or I would do a fourplex and I would do roommates. And so the, the clearer you can get on the different strategies you would consider, I think you select different words that you would ask your real estate agent to search for, for you. Or if you're going to do the search yourself, you know, try to use these to search for them online in the like uh, description text, you know, what the real estate agent is writing to use to describe the property, because it's, you don't want to, the alternative is you could look at every single property, read through it and evaluate, is this a good possible property? And in a market like ours right now, where the inventory is literally at all time lows, you might be able to do that because there aren't that many properties coming on. You could go ahead and search for, you know, just basically what's new today, look at the X number of properties that popped on, and you probably could get away with that. In markets where, you know, you start your search and there's, 400 properties that are still available that have not gone under contract and that you could choose from, you know, maybe you want to uh, use some type of search criteria or search term in order to find those. Um, and so in the market, normally you'd ask your real estate agent, Hey, set me up a notification where if any of these words, which I'm going to get to in a second, come up in the description of the property, then I want to be notified. I want you to send me an email with that property so that I could read it Re manually remove any false positives, which you'll see there are certain phrases in here that they're going to, it'll trigger an email to be sent for you, but it's not really what you're looking for. It's like someone describes it that way and it's not an ideal fit for you to do as the, as the house hack. Okay. So, so basically you set them up to either search for it, or when you go to your favorite searching website, you know, in Northern Colorado, the direct website to access for the local MLS. Basically, if you want to see directly into our local MLS and it's not specifically for any real estate agent, you can go to coloproperty.com, C-O-L-O property.com. That's the direct access to our multiple listing service. So that is the most up-to-date information. If you go to a website like any of the big names, you know, Zillow, Trulia, Realtor, whatever you're kind of shopping on, um, you know, those may have inaccurate information. But if you go to coloproperty.com, that literally is our MLS. So that is the database for our multiple listing service. Uh, that's where all the real estate agents enter their stuff and update stuff uh, as things are happening. And I was sidetracked. So if you're going there and you're doing your searching, you, these are the words you're going to want to possibly use in order to come up with possible list of properties. I will also tell you, you know, having done this for a while, my experience is you're going to do these searches and you're rarely going to find stuff that matches. It's going to be like, you know, you do a search for something, maybe one matches, maybe two. 
uh, depending on like your geographic area, if you say all, all of Colorado, which, you know, you'd have to go to special websites to do that, then that might be a lot bigger. But most of the time you're, you're going to come up with no matches or one result or two results. And a lot of times they're not going to be positive, uh, which is going to be part of the selection talk we have here in a second. Okay. So let's talk about the keywords. So there are really obvious ones that you might want to be searching for. Uh, for example, duplex, triplex, fourplex. You know, if you can go and search either by property type, because our MLS allows you to actually enter it in as a legitimate property type, that it's a duplex, triplex, or fourplex number of units. But you may also want to search the keyword phrase for duplex, triplex, or fourplex so that you could find uh, properties that stick out like that. In Northern Colorado, they're relatively rare. A lot more of them in Greeley. Uh, if you watch some previous classes on market stats, I break down how many of these come up for sale each year in each city. And you can look at that. But those are the like really obvious ones. There's some really subtle ones too here though. So for example, mother-in-law, in-law, or sweet. So if uh, let's let me use the kind of false positive as an example here. Let's use let's use the term sweet and see what happens. So if you use the term sweet, S U I T E, and and you may want to do you may want to do misspellings because some real estate agents don't know how to spell very really well. Um, and you, I'm laughing at myself because if you guys have ever read any of my emails, I don't proofread, and so there's plenty of spelling mistakes, plenty of uh, typos and stuff. Yeah, exactly, sweet Andrew. That's right, Not spelled exactly like that. So. But, you know, real estate agents misspell things and they get listed in the MLS and, you know, maybe you're able to find a property because you use the misspelled version of that word and uh, maybe it comes up that way. So anyway, if you do, a, if you, to get back to my story, if you use the word sweet, S-U-I-T-E, and you're trying to find properties that, you know, have a mother-in-law suite or an in-law suite or, you know, uh, you know I, I don't know, other variations of that, uh, you may actually catch things like, um, like bathroom suites or five piece master suites or, you know, or like uh, master bedroom suite or, you know, some other variation that would not actually be a good house hacking type of situation. It may just be a really big bedroom in a million dollar property or something like that. And that wouldn't match what you're looking for, but I would rather do the search and say, yeah, that's not a good match than to miss a possible one where someone uses that word. And it really is used to describe some type of, mother-in-law, in-law, suite, or whatever it is. And Voita says, yeah, I've also seen duplexes listed as single-family homes by mistake. Absolutely. That's what I'm talking about here is that a lot of times you're doing these searches in order to try to find things that are miscategorized or entered wrong or you know some other really funky thing like that. And there's, there's a lot of different mistakes that happen here. It, it could be geographical mistakes where someone kind of pins the property to a different part of the map and maybe you were only searching in a certain zip code or whatever it was and that property doesn't match by geographical area or whatever it ends up being. So realize that you're, you have to like, you will find more opportunities if you open yourself up to find things that are misclassified, mislabeled, you know, kind of like misentered into the MLS. And no, apparently this is like a crazy topic because uh, I just had a whole bunch of questions pop in. So Tree says, are there zoning issues that could prohibit adding a separate entrance to a single family home? Absolutely, yes. There are uh, zoning issues that would uh, limit your ability to do stuff like that. And uh, also they would limit your ability to actually rent them as separate complete units. So that's like to call it a true duplex. However, as you'll see down at the bottom of my uh, this slide right here, sometimes if we're doing roommates, a property that is a 
in quotes, non-conforming duplex that isn't technically a duplex. It doesn't have separate uh, heating and air systems, which is one of the requirements for duplex. It doesn't have, you know, separate mailing address or whatever else their criteria is in whatever city or municipality you are in uh, that would require kind of like their definition of what it is. Sometimes those are set up as duplexes and you could actually have a roommate in that situation where it's not, you're renting the separate roommate. It's just, hey, you are my roommate and I'm complying with the occupancy laws for that particular city. And so I only have me and you or me and two other people or whatever the rule is for that city. And that could be compliant and an ideal situation for you because it could be something where it's awesome. You live in one upstairs unit and is a non-conforming, non-technical, really classified as a duplex duplex that's downstairs. Or maybe that becomes an Airbnb suite where you have like, you know, someone come and visit you for a very short period of time, as long as you're following those rules. That type of idea. So, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, let's see. Andrew says, often a condo is called multifamily or a townhome is called the duplex. Yeah, I've definitely seen situations. And, it, and, and here's a great, great example of this, Andrew, is um, sometimes people will describe, um, you know, they're, they're selling a townhome that is really a, a two-unit building where you own half of it and the other person owns the other half as a half duplex. They're, they're literally have you know duplex in there. So if you search for the word duplex, that may come up where they're only really selling half of it. It's not really great for you. It's just an attached townhome where they're selling half of it. So this is like you manually going through and filtering out the false positives. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Hunter says, curious what grandfather properties are. So uh, a grandfather property would be a property where they were using it for a certain use. That use was not covered by a certain law. Like they were, they were using it for a certain uh, kind of like um, way that they were using it. And then a new law got passed that would otherwise prevent them from doing it. But because they were using it before that law went in place, they actually allowed them to continue using it in that old way, even though it really shouldn't be moving forward. And so that's considered grandfathered in. Um, and, you know, you can try to find properties that are grandfathered where, you know, they're acting as a rooming house when technically their rooming houses wouldn't otherwise be allowed there anymore. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I talked about mother-in-law in law and suite. Uh, the other search term that you may want to consider searching for is separate entrance. So you may want to do separate or entrance or separate entrance for both. And, and you want to try to catch variations on this. And, and this applies to all the words. Like if you just do, if you do a, a search term for the exact, because Andrew, it's not Google that's doing the searching. I mean, it's some, you know, less than perfect algorithm for how they're searching in their terms there. And so if you do a search for the word separate, you may find ones that say separate way into the basement, which would not show up if you did a search for separate entrance, uh, which you might think is how everyone's going to describe it. So you might want to do separate, may want to do entrance. You may want to do any other way that you can think of to describe this. And that becomes your secret sauce for kind of finding properties there. So separate entrance is another one to do. And then another one, a kind of like more unusual way to find these properties is kitchen plural. So kitchens. And the reason we like that word is someone will say, you know, uh, two kitchens or, um, you know, upstairs and downstairs kitchens, and they'll try to describe a property as having two kitchens. Two kitchens is a really unusual feature, unless it's probably pretty good for house hacking, because then you have two separate eating areas and stuff like that. So it's more unusual to have that. And so if you find a kitchens, plural, 
then that tends to be a good house hacking property. Uh, another one, ADU, which stands for accessory dwelling unit. So you can search for ADU, the three letters, or accessory dwelling unit, or unit or accessory or dwelling and try to find those individual words. Maybe they described it differently or maybe they didn't know what the abbreviation really was or something like that. Another variation on this that we're seeing, um, some builders are calling these multi-generational properties. The thinking is you have mom and dad or grandma and grandpa live with you. And so they're describing them as multi-generational properties where there's a main house and then there's a second entrance you know, on the side of the garage or something like that, or just to the left of the front door or whatever it is. And then that entrance goes into like a mini accessory dwelling unit or a mini property, like a, you know, almost like a, a separate apartment as part of a main property where grandma and grandpa live. And sometimes most of the time they have a door connecting the uh, ADU to the main house so they can count it as part of the same uh, square footage. Yeah, Andrew, that's a really good point compound may also be a interesting one to add. I, I hadn't had that one on my list before, but you're right. That same idea is true. Like, you know, the word compound, if they have like a, you know, housing compound with, you know, three units, it's because some people describe these things unusually and they're individuals, they're real estate agents who are human that make mistakes all the time and they're rushed or it's their assistant, you know, entering things in here. And so they could describe them in unusual ways. So that's a good one, Andrew. That's, I probably should make a note to add that if I can to my, my presentation for next time. Um, another example of a word to search for is basement apartment. Um, and so you could do a, a search for the word apartment or garage apartment. And so you can do that or cottage. Sometimes they'll describe it as, uh, you know, a separate cottage. Or I, I've also seen situations, not as much around here, like when I was buying a lot in Florida, um, we'd see stuff with like pool house. And the pool house would be a good one because, you know, a lot of times those are just big enough to be like a one unit efficiency apartment if you're willing to convert them to that as kind of a, um, uh, an, an, an extra rental kind of income source, a house hack. So those are examples. Another one, and Tammy brought this up, and I think it's a really good one, is some people will, will put in wet bar. And so the great thing about a wet bar is in the basement, they have at least the source of water and a bar there that has a sink. And, you know, some people get a hot plate and they're able to have their you know roommate and their roommate could feel comfortable enough living down there. And so that could be a situation that could lead you to find a potentially good house hack property. So wet bar would be another good one. Now realize, what's the definition of house hacking? It's being able to get extra income from your property. It doesn't have to be a roommate. It doesn't have to be that you're renting out another unit to a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. It could be just that you're getting extra income from the property by doing something like allowing an RV, a recreational vehicle, to park in an RV spot on your lot and kind of live there. Maybe you own the RV or maybe someone else brings their own RV and does that. And so if you do a search for the term RV, you may find properties that have RV parking, where then you could go buy a relatively inexpensive RV. Maybe you go stay out in the RV and you Airbnb your place out. And maybe you've got you know your 50% occupancy where half the time you're living in your own house, half the time you're living in the RV. And you'd have to make sure that you're not violating any of the HOA rules by having the RV park there too long and stuff like that. And we'll talk about the, the rules related to that here in a little bit, but that's the idea is you, know, you can do stuff like RV parking or things like that in order to find this. Uh, oh, Jason just showed up. Jason says, how about two bedroom or three bedroom? <laughs> oh my goodness, Jason. 
Oh, that is actually pretty funny, buddy. Um, yeah, so Jason's pointing out that, hey, if you want to have roommates, maybe you search for a two-bedroom place. <laughs> if you want to have roommates, maybe you search for a three-bedroom place. Yeah, that's really funny, Jason. Um, he also says, oh, I love that idea. Airbnb at the house and I can sleep on the boat. Yeah, so so for Jason's market, and I don't have this on my list because he lives in a place that, by the water. Apparently he has views of, uh, I've not been to his house, but apparently he has views of the ocean from his house. He sits out in his hot tub and he looks over the crashing waves and something, something, Washington, something, something. So um, yeah, but you could go down to your boat. You could actually sleep on the boat and you could rent out your place as an Airbnb. So in those markets, Maybe you have, you know, pier or dock or whatever it is for a boat on there and you could use that. Or maybe it's like a, uh, you know, the, uh, what do you call the the boat house? Is it a boat house? Yeah, I guess it's a boat house, right? Where you can kind of, instead of the pool house, you do boat house. So there you go. There's the variations for if you live in a oceanside town or whatever it happens to be. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Two bedroom, three bedroom. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's like master of the obvious. Okay, so uh, some other terms to search for Airbnb. So if uh, someone's been Airbnb in the property and it's got a history, you know, that might be a uh, kind of like a shortcut to do that. Uh, VRBO, another example of that, vacation rental, short-term rental, uh, with or without dashes, because everyone spells it differently. Or STR stands for short-term rental. You know, those are different variations of, excuse me, ways to search for properties that would do that. Um, I think the term house hacking is becoming part of the popular vernacular. It's, it's, it's entering the main uh, vocabulary of the country. And so as more and more people become accustomed to using that as a term to describe and to kind of attract people to do things, I think you should start searching for the term house hack just to see if you can find, you know, potential properties that are listed as a hey, great house hacking property. Um, and you could do that. Or, you know, the term roommate, where somebody could uh, describe, you know, a good roommate situation or roommate property or whatever it is. So those could be there. Okay, and I think I, I jumped ahead to this to answer someone's question before, but non-conforming, the term non-conforming, and I think, you know, with and without dashes, with and without spaces, because people spell it all differently. But the example I thought of is that non-conforming duplex idea. You know, someone describes it as a, uh, you know, it's a single family home. So a lot of times they will, as, as Voita pointed out, they, sometimes they'll list it wrong. But in some cases, they're listing it legitimately because it's technically zoned as a single family home. Even though you walk up to it and it looks like a duplex, you walk into it, it, it is a duplex. You kind of like look around the outside. It's totally set up like a duplex. Like everything about it screams duplex, except it's not a duplex. Like if you go to zoning, it's a single family home. Now, if you were going to buy that property, and you thought you were going to rent it out to two separate family units and to get two separate leases on it and to think that that was copacetic, you would be wrong because you would not be following the local rules and the local guidelines for being able to do that property. And that would be problematic for you. You may be able to get away with it for a short period of time, but eventually that's going to catch up to you. And I would not encourage you to build a business, a substantial multi-million dollar real estate business. Uh, on trying to kind of like sneak around in the rules and act in the gray area when if you just follow the rules, you'll be great, you'll be fine, it'll be amazing, and you don't need to do that. You don't need to kind of like cheat, okay? So what's great about those non-conforming duplexes though, a duplex that in, in a lot of ways looks and feels and smells and acts like a duplex, but is technically not a duplex for zoning or compliance or whatever the reason is that it's technically not a duplex, you can act like you have roommates, though. 
You can't go and rent to an entire family unless zoning and occupancy laws allow you to do that. But if you comply with the, let's say it's in Fort Collins, the U plus two rules that says it can be you and two other people living in a property, and it just happens to feel like a duplex, and you have one person living in the downstairs, or maybe it feels like a non-conforming triplex, you have one living in one unit, that looks like that, another one living in another unit and you living in the third, you're still complying with U plus two. That's the rule that says you and two other people can live in a property. As long as they don't have extra people in their property and you have to tell them they cannot in order to comply. But if it's you guys, then it's like having three mini suites in a single family home, okay? And so doing a search for non-conforming can help you find and ferret out the duplex, triplex, fourplexes that would do that. And I I made an extra note here. I would not recommend violating rules to rent these as separate units, but it could be ideal for a roommate situation. So uh, here's like the big catch in in this stuff, and it's going to lead over into the next slide. So if you guys have questions on this, go ahead and enter it in. But here's the catch. You got to buy this with economics that makes sense for it not being a duplex, for it not being a legal duplex, triplex, or fourplex. You can't pay duplex pricing for a property that is really a single family home that sort of looks like a duplex. You could run your numbers and see what makes sense for you to do it, but you can't be comparing this to like what prices for a duplex would be. And what's good about this too is when financing comes around, it's not a duplex. It's a single family home. And there are, there are, it's harder to finance duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes, right? You can go buy a, a property with a VA loan and get nothing down if you happen to get VA benefits uh, for a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. Or you can do a three and a half percent down FHA loan to do a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. But you could typically only do the FHA loan once with some really unusual exceptions. The VA loan, you could do it more than one time if you don't use your VA limit, which around here, you're probably using your VA limit even just buying one of them. So you're limited on how many you can buy. And if you're not owner occupying it, if someone else is coming in after you, when you go to sell it, they have to put down probably 25% because it's now a a multifamily property. They're not gonna be able to do a 20% down non-owner occupant loan to get that. So this is what I'm saying. Don't pay duplex pricing for a property that's not really a duplex, but can you afford to pay a premium or at least top of the market for a single family home if the property is laid out in a way that you can do the income? Maybe. And that leads me into my next slide, which is be careful when you buy properties that are really good for your particular use, but are going to be problematic for you to sell later on unless it happens to be to someone exactly like you in this situation. And in other words, if, if you think about how many people are out there that are house hacking, the number is definitely increasing. I, I'll tell you, we hear more people willing to get roommates and stuff, especially as prices go up. But to count on that being there in the future, that you know, in order to sell your property, and it has to be someone who is willing to have these roommates and, and kind of like this unusual situation, be willing to do that, you're narrowing your pool of buyers. And so I would discourage you, I would discourage you from making a decision solely based on that. I, I would rather have you think about, okay, if I go to sell this, am I going to be able to sell it to a really wide group of people and get top dollar for it? You don't want to back yourself into a corner by buying a property that's wacky, except for that really one good use, okay? So that's why I think you need to kind of weigh this. Uh, And Jason says, what do you think of converting a garage? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, I didn't even put that in here as, as a, a tip, Jason, but you're right. You know, you could do these things where you buy a property that has unfinished basement. So maybe some of your search criteria could be, you know, unfinished basement or um, extra garage or something like that, where you could go in and if you're handy and you're willing to pull a permit and follow all the regulations, you could go and add square footage and add extra rental sources to a property and do that. I didn't add that as a tip. It's, it's a good tip. Um, I just didn't have it on there. And so, yeah, you, you could convert a garage. This sort of related to this topic where I'm talking about where you're doing things that can impact your ability to sell the property later. And maybe you find the right guy or girl and they're willing to pay you a premium for you know, having the property like that because they want to also house hack and you got really good income and you could show them and document that. But I think it is a narrower buyer pool. And depending on what the market is doing at that time, that could actually hurt you in some situations, I think. So just be careful about it. It's not an automatic no. It's just eyes wide open. Realize this is not a normal house situation. It's kind of an unusual setup. And you're going to have a limited number of people that would want to do it. Like if it was if it was like a non-conforming triplex and it looked like a triplex, but you really couldn't rent out the unit separately, not everybody wants to buy that property, right? Like a, a normal family who was living in there with you know, two small kids, they probably don't want to have a triplex unless they really can rent out the other things as a triplex. So just be careful. Uh, Hunter says, along that same line, how realistic is it to turn a bi-level single family home into a duplex, uh, into a conforming duplex where you have totally separate heating systems, separate ventilation systems, you know, the separate addresses and it's zoned in an area that is, uh, that allows multifamily. Uh, I think the chance of you doing that Hunter is really low. If you're saying, can you go into a bi-level, you know, add some drywall to, so that when you walk in the door, there's a locked door to the left going upstairs and a locked door to the right going downstairs and you do it as a roommate situation. Sure, you could do something like that, but that's sort of the wackiness I'm warning you about. Uh, it, it may be great for you during your like house hacking period where you're renting to a roommate and you're able to get 900 or you know a thousand or twelve hundred dollars or whatever it is for kind of like their own separate space you're able to get a premium for that for renting it out but when you go to sell that property you got to find someone who's like you and wants that and it may be a really small number of people that want that whereas if you had left it as a buy level you could have had 30 percent of the market or 40 percent of the market that were interested in a property and it would have considered a buy level for a regular home so that's where i'm talking about these trade-offs and Maybe it still makes sense for you, depending on how long you're going to be there and, and what the actual economics of the property are for you to go do that, but maybe it's not. And I think that's just the eyes wide open part of you doing it. Okay, so we talked about the property search side. Now we're talking about property selection, like what you actually are willing to buy. And, and the warning I have here to start is be super careful about waiting for that perfect property. And, and the way I would describe it is this. I think there is a time, there comes a time in your life where you sit back and you just wait for the perfect pitch, you know, kind of use like a Warren Buffett analogy. You just, you sit there and you, you can never be called out standing at the plate. You're never going to be called out on strikes. You just wait until that super fat, juicy softball pitch comes right across the plate in your sweet spot. And you just take it downtown grand slam home run, right? You just kind of sit there and you wait to do that. I think there is a time in your real estate investing career when a strategy like that can make sense, especially if you can invest other ways while you're waiting for that one perfect property to move into or something like that. I do think that there is a time for that. However, if this is your first property 
And you don't know how long it will take for that perfect property to kind of come across. And then even if it does come across, especially in our market right now, where it's crazy, um, and I, a property we listed close, I'll, I'll share numbers with you here in a moment on this, but in a, in, a, in a market where you could want a property, you could go after it aggressively and make a, a significantly above asking price offer and waive appraisal and waive inspection and still not get the property, still not get your offer accepted. And now you got to wait that same amount of time or maybe longer in order to find that, that next property to come along to do that with. I'm not so sure that makes sense, especially in a market like right now, maybe where you are in a relatively fast appreciating market and no one knows what's going to happen in the future. Property values can go start going down from here. I don't really know. I don't think they are, but it's possible we could start seeing that. So right now we're in a fast appreciating market where the longer you wait, the higher the price tends to be for these properties that we're waiting for. Plus the other thing that's moving against you is where are interest rates right now? they're pretty much at all-time lows. Maybe it bumped up just the tiniest bit to you know 3% from 2.625 or whatever they were, but 3% is ridiculously good. 3.25 is ridiculously good. 3.5 is ridiculously good. So, but as interest rates are near or at all-time lows, which is sort of where they are right now, and if we're kind of thinking they're going to be going up at some point in the future, who knows when, could be next month, could be five years from now, no one really knows. I mean, there's some people with predictions, but it's really hard to predict the future. So if you're in a market where property values are going up really rapidly and interest rates are probably going up, waiting for that perfect property could hurt you more than what you would gain from buying the property. As just an example, let's say, you know, the difference between the good enough property that you could buy right now with a you know two month search window and the perfect property that might take you a year in order to do. Let's say you get an extra hundred dollars a month in cash flow from you know buying the perfect property and it, you know you're getting a hundred dollars less if you buy the good enough property now. Over the course of a year, between interest rates rising you know, probably just interest rates rising, but interest rates rising and property prices going up, you could actually lose that $100 a month in cash flow by doing that. So it might not even be the $100 a month anymore that you thought it was going to be. So be careful about this being too picky, too selective in your property search. Once you get a certain number of properties and you're just sort of like waiting for that kind of like perfect one to come along uh, and maybe you have enough money to put 25% down and buy non-owner occupant properties as they come and you're just waiting for that really, really good house act to come along. Sure. I mean, you've already got a couple million dollars worth of real estate and you know, you're on the side of property values going up. And I think you have a different, you have a different selection criteria, different selection timing for doing that. But if you're trying to do this, and you, you want to get into the market so that it's now on your side. And, and especially if you're trying to do nomad where you're buying a property and trying to wait a year and then do the next one, every month that you wait delays the entire rest of your acquisition too. So it's not just one month delay. It's one month delay times whatever number of properties that you thought you were going to acquire. All of those would have moved up a month too if you had acquired the property earlier. So just be careful about this. And of course, you know, talk to your real estate agent when you're kind of in the shopping mode. If you want to get a feel for this kind of nuanced timing versus what's reasonable, what's not reasonable, but just be aware that don't just wait for something perfect. And the biggest example of this is 
occasionally someone will come to a you know real estate investor meeting you know for their first meeting or something like that and they're they've been online browsing a whole bunch of things and and you know they're like i want a duplex triplex or fourplex or they'll say something crazy like i want a fourplex like i'm not willing to do duplex triplex if i'm going to do this i want to make sure i get maximum income because they believe if i get the fourplex i'm going to have enough income coming in cuz they're going to cash flow enough to make my living in the one unit free which isn't usually true in our marketplace, but they, that's the thinking that they have, that they're going to be able to find this amazing property. They're going to live for free. They're going to have this extra you know, $1,500 a month that they were paying in rent or $2,000 a month. They're paying in rent. They're going to be able to use that to save up and do their next deal. I mean, I've heard this right, a, a ton of times. The, the challenge is there aren't a lot of fourplexes that come up for sale, especially in like Fort Collins, Loveland area. Occasionally we have one, but it's really uncommon. And, and of the ones that come up, most of them, their numbers are not that great. And so- here's a couple tips this and i'm going off topic but i think i've got time let me take a drink and i'll I'll give you the tip so here's the tip and this isn't perfect but it's it's a good exercise for you to do if what i just described is you where you're thinking okay i'm going to go to the real estate investor meeting and you know i really want to buy a fourplex or triplex or it doesn't really matter the, the idea is the same what you should do is ask your real estate agent say listen I'm thinking about buying in these markets, Fort Collins, Level, and Windsor, whatever it is. Um, and I want to buy a fourplex. Could you please go into the multiple listing service and pull all of the whatever units you were trying to buy, fourplexes, triplexes, duplexes, uh, all, all the ones that got listed in the last year that sold? It's going to be a small list if you're in Northern Colorado. And can you send me all the MLS sheets? And if you do, if you're my client, you ask me to do this, I'll send you over all the MLS sheets. Then what you should do is you should take all those MLS sheets and you should run numbers on them as if you were considering buying them. Then find out how many of those would have met your criteria that you would have been interested in buying. And in some cases, we could tell if they had multiple offers because they'll have notes in the, the section or you'll see how much it got bid up above asking price, which is also a sign of how hot the market is. And so you can go ahead and sort of, play back in time historically what has happened that doesn't mean it's going to be the same as it is for you in the future it could be worse it could be better uh, but it should give you at least some guidance as to what that looks like and if you start thinking to yourself okay i, I went and i pulled and i got 12 mls sheets because that's all there were in a year and of the 12 that i did only two of them would have worked for me and of the two of them that would have worked for me uh, looks like they would have been really, really aggressive. And there's probably no way I would have been willing to bid $50,000 above asking price in this particular property. So I really had a shot at one. Do you have a year to possibly wait for the one? And it's possible it could come tomorrow, but it was only one of them in the last 12 months. You have to decide what you're willing to do and how that might look for you. Okay. So you can look at historical data to get a feel of what is happening and what the numbers look like on those properties and analyze them as if they were still available. And would you have bought them? Okay. That was my tip for that. What else do I got here? So I have a note in here. If you're going to do the nomad buy sequentially, you're looking for the best property within a reasonable time searching. That reasonableness is set by you, but I don't think it's unreasonable to say, Hey, I'm going to give myself two months, three months to search to find a property. Um, You know, if you're moving pretty quickly a month, but I mean, if you tell me, Hey, listen, I got a week to find a property. Your hope your criteria is really wide, wide open, because it's going to be, it's going to be hard if you have a narrow search criteria, especially in a really low inventory environment, especially in a very competitive multiple offer environment for you to be able to find this. Oh, and let me share the numbers with you. So we had a listing, it just closed. So I I can share because it's now public. The data is public. 
So we had a, a property um, seller was listing to their property. Uh, we went and we did full comparable sale analysis, really evaluated the property. Property needed quite a bit of work. And so we thought with the amount of work that this property needed, provided somebody was doing a lot of the work themselves, they were not going to hire contractors and do this. Um, it probably needed, you know, in that 35,000, 30,000, know, somewhere in that ballpark uh, amount of work. And so we listed the property for 335 in Loveland. We thought it was worth about 370 fixed up. Um, listed property for sale, I think on a Wednesday night. I think we had 50, I'm sorry, we had 100 people through the property in five days and you can't have overlapping showings. So you have to have distinct time slots. So a hundred people went through a property in five days um, without having any overlapping showings at all. It was basically totally booked. And it, it, it's, it's pretty fascinating seeing some of this stuff. You know, some agents would call me up like, Hey, I tried to call the showing service. I, uh, you know, for some reason I wasn't able to schedule it for three o'clock today. So I'm just going to head over there at three o'clock. We'd have to call them back and be like, no, you, you can't go at three o'clock. The reason why you're unable to get in is it's actually booked. There are that many people trying to get in the property that there are no openings for you for the next two days. You should have called like four days ago. Uh, for you to do it. So that was the problem, right? So getting like 100 people in, in like five days, there were 27 offers on the property. Um, All but two of them were for above asking price, many of them way above asking price. We ended up accepting not the highest offer, but the highest offer that had the best other terms. Uh, It was a very high offer, but it wasn't the highest uh, that, you know, they waived a bunch of stuff and, you know, they seem reasonable to work with. And they had all the other stuff that you would expect to see an offer. And the property sold for um, $35,000 above asking price. Basically what we thought the property would have been worth totally fixed up, but it wasn't fixed up. It needed like $35,000 worth of work. So to give you a feel of, and this is like within this last 40 days. So to give you a feel of how hot the market is, that's what you're competing against in some situations. Not every property is like that, but you need to be like crazy aggressive. Sometimes you're, it's going to be really hard to get into a property. Uh, you know, you may only have 15 minutes to see it. You, you can't show up five minutes late for your 15 minutes showing because there's people behind you waiting to get in. And, and you like need to come in extremely strong in order to get offers accepted. So in markets like that, which is the ridiculousness that we're in right now, just be prepared for some of that stuff. I don't even know why I went off on that tangent. Maybe it's about selection and trying to find properties or just to give you an idea of how hot markets are right now. Okay, so the final comment on here is select properties that would be conducive to house hacking and your situation, but doesn't limit your use, especially if you end up selling it or converting it to a different type of rental once you move out. For example, when you go to resell it, you make sure that you're not hurting yourself by buying a property that's wacky. It may be perfect for house hacking, but it's wacky for resale. Beware. Uh, or converting it to a more traditional rental or something like that. So just when you select your property, beware of that. Okay. Wow. I thought this was going to be like a 30 minute class. Apparently it's more than that. Is this good? You guys like this stuff? Is it helpful? While I'm taking my, my beverage break. Indeed. Okay, good. At least one person's liking it. Okay. Oh, Carlos liking it too. There you go, Carlos. I, I got your apples. Carlos is my teacher's pet tonight. Andrew, good job, bud. Okay, here we go. Analyze your house hack deal. I, I do think that there are a lot of house hackers that they do like back of the napkin math. They're like, uh, I want to buy a property. I can afford 400000 I'm going to get my loan. and we put 5% down, buy a property for 400000 And I think I can uh, maybe rent a room for 500 bucks, 600 bucks, maybe 700 bucks per month. And uh, that's the math I did. 
I think that's a mistake. Um, I mean, you, you can get by doing that, but I, I do think you should run your numbers. And what's, I guess what's hard about house hacking, and I think why the argument against doing your numbers is, in a lot of cases, you're not going to be able to have any type of positive cash flow on the property, right? You're going to buy a property. You're maybe going to be able to get two roommates and the two roommates are not going to be nearly enough for you to be able to acquire the property and cover your mortgage payment. So it's going to be negative. The percentage that it's going to be negative is going to look really ugly because you only put 5% down, presumably, or 0% down if you did VA or you know three and a half if you did FHA. And so you look at the numbers and it's like negative 174% cash on cash. That's that's meaningless in a lot of ways, right? I mean, because the small amount that you put down, it gets amplified anyway, and you're living in the property. So, like, I mean, so analyzing the deal, I could see why you'd be tempted not to do it. But I do think you should actually run your numbers on the property. And and probably it sort of reminds me of like when we tell people to nomad, and uh, Trina and I were talking about this the other day on the phone. Um, we were talking about this, like, you know, she's like, why do you use 20% down when you analyze your nomad properties? And I was reminded of a really funny joke. And the, and the joke basically is, you know, uh, this, this husband asks his wife, hey, you know, why do you cut the top off of the ham when you cook the ham in your pot? And she's like, I don't know, my mom always cut the top off the ham. So let's go ask mom why, why she does it. So they go and they ask mom. And mom's like, uh, I, I don't know why I cut the top off of the ham. You know, uh, grandma always cut the top off of the ham. I, I thought that was the way you do it. Let's go ask grandma. So they go and they ask grandma, hey, grandma, why do you cut the top off of the ham before you cook it in the big pot? And grandma goes, I don't know why you fools are cutting the top off your ham, but I'm doing it because my pot's too small. And so it's, it's sort of like this, why do we use 20% when we analyze Nomad? And one of the reasons why is because that's historically how I analyze deals. And so I like to look at the numbers as if I was going to put 20% down and see if the numbers make sense when you buy it as a traditional investment, not as a Nomad. Because when you put 5% down, the numbers get amplified in wacky ways. If you're negative $5 a month cash flow and you put nothing down on the property, it could still be this really large negative percentage cash on cash return when it's really just $5 a month negative. And so if you had put 20% down, you would analyze the property, you would have said, okay, this would have made sense for me to buy just straight up as an investment. And so now I know that I'm willing to buy it straight up as an investment. The numbers look good to me. Now let me go and put 5% in and see what the numbers change to. And am I okay with whatever negative cash flow or positive cash flow I would see if I only put 5% down and I didn't put a full 20% down? And so that's why we typically do the 20% down one. And so the roundabout way of why I'm telling you this story for house hacking is maybe you analyze the house hack as if you were going to rent it out traditionally or if you were able to rent it out and actually replace yourself with income from another roommate situation where like maybe you're, you know, having three roommates in a property and they're each paying 600, 600, and maybe 800 for the basement suite or something like that. And so you can look at the income on that and say, if I were able to get income on this whole property, would it make sense to buy traditionally as an investment property and then run numbers on it to see if that would make sense for you? And sometimes it still won't make sense and you'll still decide that's worthwhile buying because it's good enough and you're making trade-offs because you're going to be living in the property. So sometimes we buy a property in Old Town Fort Collins, not because the economics are amazing, but because we want to be in Old Town Fort Collins and we're willing to make that trade. Or a lot of nomads might do something like this. Hey, my spouse needs to have granite countertops in the kitchen. Well, Granite countertops might not always be the best income-producing upgrade to make, 
they're not bad, but they may not be the best one. But if that's what it's going to take to get your spouse to go along with moving and doing Nomad, then that's a small price to pay for you to acquire another rental, live there for a year, and then convert it to a rental like that. So sometimes we'll make trade-offs to do that. Same idea with house hacking. You run your numbers as if it was going to be a more traditional investment, or you're going to get income and house hacking is, you know, you're going to get three roommates or you're going to have three paying roommates instead of you being one of the three. And you're going to kind of remove yourself from the situation. You analyze the deal. You see if that makes sense. Then you say, am I willing to do this still when I'm living in the property and what the economics look like for doing that? All right. Um, Ha ha ha. That's a good one. I assume Jason's laughing at my joke. Um, And then Hunter says, I think there's something he said for different costs as a beginner and not assuming that you'll jump into things and immediately be seeing numbers that more experienced people see. For example, vacancy might be higher as you learn how to market for tents. Oh yeah, no doubt. You get experience as you go and you get better at things. You make better distinctions. You start earlier. You have all your things ready to go. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of things that experience can help with. Andre, I totally agree with that. Jason says, my wife's boyfriend insists on a three-car tandem garage. Ugh. My wife's boyfriend... Uh, I'm not sure I understand that, Jason. I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. I, you're, I don't think you're married. I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, uh, Jason has been on. I'm not sure what that is. Okay. There we go. There are some. Uh, Got to be on these live so you can see the live discussions here because I'm not going to read all of them. And some of them are like inside jokes and stuff. Okay. So where I was going with this. Oh, so when you are analyzing your property, if you decide, okay, look, I analyze it as a regular rental. I do think this would be a good rental when I do eventually move out or when I keep my, you know, replace myself with another roommate and I move on to my next house hack and I rent this room by room and kind of, kind of get really good rent on it. I think the numbers look awesome. Realize a couple things that is unique to house hacking. Number one is utilities on a property are often... Um, different. They're handled differently than in a traditional single family home. Single family home, a lot of times the tenant pays for all the utilities. You're not doing any of that. If you're renting by the room, that may not be true. Or if you're if you're renting to roommates, that may not be true. Maybe you're splitting it as part of the house rules or something like that. So realize utilities are going to be different than what you you know, normally do. So realize that you can either bill back and exclude them from your analysis, or if you are covering those as part of your expense, you know, the utilities are included type of stuff when you're talking to your tenants, make sure you add those in to your actual deal analysis to do that. Maintenance on your property tends to be higher too. When you have four people living in a property, if you're allowed to for occupancy rules or three people or whatever, realize maintenance is higher for that than just a single graduate student renting out a, a property from you. So realize your maintenance numbers may adjust as well. And vacancy may or may not be depending on how much in demand your property is and you know your ability and you're your kind of like how critical and selective you are in choosing your tenants, which we'll talk about here in a second and so on. So realize that those numbers can be higher significantly higher in some cases than if you're just doing single family homes. So make sure you know what reasonable numbers to use for there. And if you're asking me, I may not know because I, I mean, I could take educated guess, but it may be very different for you, right? Like depending on like how much you use utilities and the house itself and what the setup is. And so it could be tricky. Um, discuss types of numbers you might expect to see. So here, I'll just kind of give you a couple examples. And um, Hunter, let me know if I can use your example. So let me know if I can do that. 
So if for those of you that have seen, yeah, Hunter says no problem. So, so here's like an example of a property that I think is rather ex- exceptional. I, I think, you know, when someone comes into the market, not Hunter in specific, but when people come into the market, sometimes they'll say, you know, I'm, I want to rent a property by CSU. I'm going to rent to students. and I'm going to get, you know, $600 per month per bedroom to do that. And, you know, there's a lot of these four bedroom, five bedroom units, um, you know, near the university and I'm going to get four or five students. And yeah, I do know about the U plus two law uh, in Fort Collins, which says it can only be you and two other people living in the property, even if it's a five bedroom property right near the university, unless it's in an exceptional, it's an exceptional, it's an exception to the zoning uh, rules for that. And you can have more than there, but in most cases they're not. And so, you know, I, I'm going to go violate the due on sale clause because nah, no one's going to catch me, which is not true. They have like full-time people looking out for these things and your neighbors complain and all sorts of other stuff. So don't think you're going to get by doing that. But the thinking is I'm going to go buy a property and maybe on a five bedroom property, I can get $2,500 a month, which, you know, on in our marketplace, if you're buying a $400,000 property, you're able to get $2,500 a month. That's really good cash flow for our marketplace. It's, it's hard to find that. Uh, or maybe you're going to get $600 a bedroom and you're going to rent to four people. And that's $2,400, which is still exceptional. It's, it's pretty amazing. The challenge with that is you're breaking these kind of rules to do it. And so in our marketplace, I think one of the things we can do and, and you kind of transition away from this and maybe you find something like kind of like what a, a hunter was able to find. So there were some new construction properties that had come up for sale in the Northwest part of Fort Collins. And I went out and I saw them and I, I kind of like emailed Hunter when I got back home. I said, Hey Hunter, this, this is an interesting situation for you because I think in a lot of properties that we're looking at, if you were just going to get you and two roommates, maybe you could get $600 a room for, you know, kind of a traditional bedroom type situation. And so maybe you could get $1,200, a month income on a property where you're living in there and still comply with U plus two. And so you can kind of offset some of your expenses by 1200 bucks. However, there was a a really interesting new construction property that came up for sale uh, in this Northwest part of Fort Collins. And it had like a basement suite is the best way I could describe it. You know, the basement had its own living room, its own bedroom and its own full bathroom down there. So I thought you could get a significant premium for that basement suite. You still had a shared kitchen, uh, but instead of getting $600 a month for the bedroom, I think you could have gotten higher than that. Now, what dollar amount for that? I don't know, but you know, more than 600 bucks, I think 800 easy. Um, and may, maybe as much as a thousand or more, depending on what it is, brand new property, really nice finishes, you know, so was, uh, to think you can kind of get this extra income from the basement seemed pretty reasonable to me. And upstairs, there was a master suite. So there was a, a full, very large master bedroom with its own walk-in uh, closet, shower, um, you know, multiple sinks. It was like a, you know, like half of the upstairs was the master suite area. And so I thought you could get a premium if you were willing to rent out the master suite. And then I think there was either one or two other bedrooms up top depending on which model it was and I thought you could live in one of those units so it would be you plus two you could get two roommates and because these were sort of like separate suites the one was completely the bottom floor the basement and the other one was like half of the upstairs which was your master and then you had this kind of shared living area and I thought you could get a premium for rent over like the $600 per bedroom that you might get from a regular bedroom so if you go from $1,200 total to maybe 800 for each. Now you're at $1,600, maybe as much as $2,000 for the same property. And I think the payments on that would have been, you know, probably in the $2,000 range, maybe a little bit more. Yeah. So Nick said, you know, what was the purchase price? I don't, I don't remember what it was. It was like 400 ish if I had guessed. They were uh, attached though, you know, so they were kind of properties and they weren't perfect. There were definitely some issues with some of the stuff. And this is just as an example. 
But I do think it applies to other things too. And I think Hunter found a similar situation in another part of town on a resale property. But I think that was sort of the idea, right? Like you could go and find these more unusual setups based on what we've been talking about tonight for kind of getting higher rents to do that. So, and, and um, if you remember Mary's interview, because Mary does house hacking and she did a really great interview if you could listen to the recording of it. There was another situation just like this for Mary where Mary had a, another property that had this base, basement suite in it, uh, you know, kind of like this whole separate unit. And she was able to get pretty significant premium for that kind of basement that had its own living room, its own bathroom, its own like massive bedroom. And so that was downstairs. And then she lived in one of the units upstairs and rented out the other one. And she was able to get a lot more rent for that, which definitely helps you acquire, you know, down payments for your next property and stuff like that. So these things can exist and they can help, definitely help you out doing that. Um, I will also point out sometimes with new construction properties, the cost to finish a basement from the builder is way less than you can actually get it done for yourself. I mean, you may be able to swing the hammer and do it cheaper, but if you're going to hire it out, like we're in the process of finishing our basement in the brand new house we bought and the, the quotes we're getting are way high, like much, much higher like two times in some cases, the cost that the builder is charging to do a basement. And so maybe you go and have the builder finish out a basement, you know, pencil in the math for what this would cost. And maybe you get this more like premium sweet sort of rent on doing that. So I just wanted to share those things on there. Uh, Hunter says, yep, that model seems to work pretty well so far. People are totally willing to pay a premium for the basement suite and master suite stuff. Yeah, Hunter, I don't know if you're willing to share, but if you can give us an idea, if you're willing to give us an idea of what you're able to get premium wise for rent for a suite, like a basement and uh, upstairs bathroom, that'd be pretty helpful, I think, for a lot of folks on there. And I'm willing to read it out if you put it in there. Um, okay, so discuss types of numbers to what you might expect to see here. In a lot of cases, a lot of people think to themselves, hey, I'm going to get, uh, so Hunter says he's getting 1745 for both rooms. So combined. So, you know, a little less than, is that 900, a little less than 900 total per, per bedroom where in normally in Fort Collins, you know, $600 a bedroom, I think is probably in the, the reasonable going rate. Although with university closed, maybe it's dropped a little bit with uh, a lot of supply and not as much demand. Um, so I'm just speculating, but that's kind of what my guess is. Okay. So discuss other types of numbers, what you may expect to see. So I think a lot of folks come to Fort Collins thinking, you know, I'm going to go buy a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex. And in the ideal world, I'm going to, you know, do a fourplex and the rents from all three units are going to pay for the fourth unit. I have not seen that to be true. So it's possible you could find one where the numbers might work like that, but that's been, uh, it's been a dream we haven't been able to replicate, especially if you're doing three and a half percent down. Um, we're just not seeing those numbers pan out. So if it doesn't work with four units, it's definitely not working with three units. It's definitely not working with two units. Now, are there exceptions to everything I just said? Absolutely. But don't count on it. I mean, that is like Grand Slam home run, bottom of the ninth on a solar eclipse in the middle of the night. You know, it's just really weird, unusual situation. It's not going to happen. Um, can it? Yep, Absolutely. Um, and if you're willing to go and rent, like if you go buy a fourplex, you rent out the three other units and you live in one and you get some roommates. Yeah. I think you can cover your expenses doing that. I think if you were able to get, because you're going to see some offset from the other units, especially if you are able to get good premiums and you bought the property rights and you got good interest rates and maybe you did a little bit more than three and a half or, you know, maybe so all those things could kind of like help out to do that. So if you're able to do that and you're able to get roommates in the unit you're living in, I do think you could offset the overwhelming majority, if not all of your rents. 
with a triplex harder with a duplex even harder to do that but can it be done where you offset a lot absolutely totally can so i think that that's uh something for you to think about and then i talked about single family homes with these kind of like suites and stuff like that where you're able to do that uh, and you know what you know what else is pretty interesting if you're willing to do like short-term rentals and you're it's compliant you're in a uh, area of town that you're able to do that you know now i'm worried i'm not going to get through this thing um but if you're in a market that you can do that with um maybe you can get enough from a short-term rental thing where on average you are able to offset your expenses on it but then you got to figure out like where you're staying and stuff like that because you could usually get a premium for these short-term rental type things but it is a lot more labor so you're trading labor for this extra income. You're, you're trading, you know, dollars per hour sort of stuff. Okay. Insurance stuff. We're going to move a little quicker here. Cause I got about 30 minutes to cover. I don't know, whatever it is, 10 more slides. So talk to your insurance agent and let them know that you have roommates that are paying you money. Cause you want to make sure you have the correct insurance policy. And I'm not hundred percent sure which one it is because I think you need to have an owner occupant policy because you're living there, but there's probably some other stuff. I don't know if uh, our insurance guy is on or not tonight. Is he on? If anyone else is in insurance, let me know what the insurance policy is. But uh, I think that in any way, no matter what, talk to your insurance agent to make sure you tell them what you're doing and make sure you've got the proper coverage for that. And in the asset protection class that we just did and both Brian's part one and part two, it's like five hours between the two of them. Um, one of them goes over like all the stuff you need to know. And then the other one's all the paperwork and forms. But if you go into those and the 10 tips on asset protection that I taught, I hit pretty hard on this idea of insurance. You'll want to make sure you have really good coverage for your home, really good coverage for your automobile, and then an umbrella policy with a really good uh, coverage limit. So that if you get sued, you have great insurance to cover, you know, the majority of the claims. It's not going to be everything, but you know, it's going to cover a lot of stuff. And if you want to watch those classes, they're all in the podcast for now. And they're all on the website. If you want to go watch the videos or listen to them while you drive, um, you know, go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash asset protection classes and list all the different ones on there. Um, I can't teach two hours. I mean, Brian teaches asset protection of five hours. There's no way I could teach that as part of this subclass. So go watch that. But you really do need to have insurance to protect yourself in these situations. And Another tip for house hackers, make sure your roommates have renter policies on their personal stuff. Because my understanding is it doesn't, your insurance policy doesn't always cover that. So, and it's definitely true if they're renting a property from you and you only have a landlord policy, maybe a weird gray area if you have a homeowner's policy where you're living there with them. But I would just just make sure because you'd hate for them to, you know, you accidentally having a fire in your property and all their stuff gets destroyed and your insurance agent tells you, hey, their stuff wasn't covered. Only yours was as an owner-occupant. They needed to have their own renter's policy. So make sure that you got that covered and they have their own policy in there. It's cheap to get a renter's policy. Make sure they're covered because you don't want to have anything come up on you. Okay. Comply with laws and rules. I think we've been sort of hitting on this a lot all night. So I'll, I'll run through this quickly. So in Fort Collins, and there are similar rules for Fort Collins, Loveland, Windsor, Greeley, like basically every other town in Northern Colorado. If you're in a different part of the country, you'll have to find out what the rules are for you, but they, they do exist. It's not just Fort Collins. Fort Collins is probably the one that enforces it the hardest. Uh, but there are other ones in other cities. And we cover all these rules in the uh, house hacking versus nomad class. If you go watch the most recent recording, I think it's from 2019. Uh, the web address is on there for that or go listen to it on the podcast. In that class, we go over all of the different occupancy laws for the different cities in Northern Colorado in detail. And you'll want to go listen to them. But look up Fort Collins U plus two. 
the, the letter U plus two, and you'll see the actual rules for Fort Collins. It's very strict. There's not a lot of wiggle room. You know, they've thought of a lot of different things. You know, you can't play the game of, well, it's really me and my brother and my brother, my other brother, but then there's two other people. No, no, no. They clearly define exactly what the rules are for those. So uh, pay attention. And it stinks. It's like the penalty is like $1,000 per day per person that violates. Um, So if you have like two people more or one person more and you're there for 30 days, that's like 30 grand. It's like no joke. And apparently they have a full-time enforcement person driving around looking for these problems and trying to force compliance. So if you think, oh, no one's looking at this stuff, au contraire, they are looking for this stuff. And if a neighbor calls and complains, they have a person that's going to go out and check up on stuff and maybe they'll sit outside and watch and see how many people go in and do the little ticker or whatever it is there. So don't mess around with it. Comply with the rules. You don't have to cheat to be successful doing this. Um, it's just going to make your things worse for you. Um, and then I don't know anything about this, but apparently there are short-term rental laws and rules and restrictions. Uh, some of them are by county. Some of them are by city. Some of them are restricted by the HOA. The HOA may say no short-term rentals, no whatever it is there. Um, sometimes your insurance policy will require that you get a different policy if you're doing anything less than a certain number of days. I think Brian used to tell me, you know, 30 days was the limit for his insurance company or something like that. So go, so go check your insurance to make sure. But if you're going to do short-term rentals, you really need to research it, understand what's going on. That is not an area of expertise for me. So uh, you'll want to do your own research on that. So comply with the laws and rules. Any questions on that? Moving right along. Health and safety. You got people living in your house. You need to make sure that you are providing adequately to protect these people and make sure that things are safe for them. So you definitely need to have smoke alarms, fire alarms, uh, CO detector, carbon dioxide detectors to make sure that you know, you're, not, you're not killing someone who's living in your house with you. Um, so for the smoke, fire, and CO detectors, the carbon dioxide detectors, make sure you change your batteries every six months. Uh, the rule of thumb I've always heard is you change them when the, um, the time changes. So when the time moves forward or time moves back, that's your reminder. You need to get the ladder out and you need to go replace you know, six nine-volt batteries around your house and change every single one of those things. And then you need to actually replace the physical detector. Those detectors don't last forever. They go bad. So you need to go physically put new ones in place every 10 years. Some people even say a little bit more frequently, but I, I hear 10 years, you know, go check the, the recommended thing for your particular model, okay? So you got to physically change those things and do that. Voita uh, says, what about things like unpermitted basements provided the work was done following the code? Yeah, you can get an after the fact permit done where they come back in and they verify that the work was done to code and that it is compliant. Um, Voita, I'm not an attorney and I'm not an insurance agent, but let me tell you how I think this works because I really don't know for sure, but this is how I think it works. Everything is fine unless something bad happens. Then when something bad happens, the person who something bad happens attorney tries to pin it to you. And so they'll say, you bought this property. You knew that this was not permitted. You knew that there was an electrical issue and you chose not to fix it. And now my client is dead. And so his family now is, deserves, you know, his income for 25 years. And they take, you know, he's a computer software engineer and he makes hundred thousand dollars a year times 25 uh, years. And, you know, that's a lot of money. And so you're probably fine until something happens and then it gets ugly. 
So I think if you have any type of possible knowledge about something that could be bad, I think you want to document that you tried to get it fixed and that you made an effort to do it and you know, got the permit, the after the fact permit fixed, and you've made sure that it was compliant. You had an electrician come out, you know, get their signature off that you did stuff like that. I think that's prudent. So that's what I would say about that. I uh, hope that helps. Uh, fire extinguishers definitely need fire extinguishers in at least your kitchen. Um, you could probably argue some other place in the house. You need to inspect those every six months, replace them as needed if they're losing their charge or whatever it is. And I, I, I Jason may know this because he, he was in the Navy and he kind of like was up on all these rules. But I think you're supposed to actually test them, like physically test them to make sure that they're working. But may, maybe I'm wrong about that. So inspect every six months, replace as needed, and uh, um, you know replace every five years no matter what because I think they go bad after a while. Here's like one of my pet peeves. And this is just stupid because – you really do need to make sure that if you have uh, people living in bedrooms, that they have an egress window, an easy way for them to exit the property in case there's a fire and they're unable to use the door. Every bedroom needs to have two ways to get out, a door and a bedroom window. So you need to have two ways to get out there. And I see people going and looking at house possible house hacks in like cities like Greeley, especially where, you know, they have two, ba- two bedrooms in the basement, but they've got these really old little mini windows, you know, like eight feet off the ground or six feet off the ground. And there's no way I could get out of there. And, you know, unless you happen to be really, really skinny and really limber and you can kind of do that, you know, that person, if there's a fire and they can't get out, they're dying in that basement. And I think that uh, that's on you. And so you need to make sure that you pay the money to have a company come in and put in full egress windows if you have people living in basements, especially if they're living with you in the basement and there's possibility uh, of them doing that. I, I think it's a good idea for all your rentals. I mean, I don't think you should have a, a bedroom that doesn't have egress windows, but especially if you're living there. Um, Andrew says, technically, I think the egress windows are for firemen to get in with full gear. That's interesting, Andrew. I didn't, I don't, I didn't hear it that way, but maybe you're right. I've always assumed that the person needs to be able to climb out. Um, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's that the fireman needs to be able to get in. Um, so I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. Anyway, you need an egress window. And there's a definition of what the egress window is. You know, your contractor that you hire to do it is going to be able to tell you. It's probably in the like building code regs. Uh, I never had to look it up. And then make sure you and your tenants have the correct insurance. So call your insurance company, tell them what you're doing, make sure that you're covered for all the situations you could possibly think of. And then make sure that your tenant has the right insurance as well for to cover their stuff. Um, Jason says, yeah, it's for the fire entry and full turnout and um, SCBA, which I think is the self-contained breathing apparatus, former firefighter. So there you go. Learn something every day. All right. No questions on health and safety. That's my health and safety tip. Financing. So uh, we literally could spend at least two hours, if not more, uh, going over all the different financing stuff. I'm not going to cover it again in detail. I will point out a couple things that are a little bit different for uh, house hackers, but please go look at the financing classes, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash financing classes, and listen to you know a couple of the classes at least on the financing stuff because there's a lot of detail here. This happens when Brian's not on. I need to like take breaks to drink because I'm talking more. Uh, so in most cases, because you're house hacking, it's going to be owner-occupant financing. So you get better rates when you get owner-occupant financing, but you have to move into the property, physically live in the property within 60 days of closing. It's a requirement of your lender and you need to live there for at least a year after you buy the property and move in. 
So that year is the same thing we use to base Nomad off of. That's how long you need to live there before you can put a tenant in there and move out and kind of buy your next property. But if you're doing house hacking, you need to live in the property for a year. So that's the rule. Um, and I, I honestly don't know how they would look at you doing like a two month vacation where you're VRBO in it for that. I, I don't know how they would look at that. I, mean, I probably want to talk to your lender and see what, how they would do that. I would imagine in most cases it's fine, but check because I don't know the answer to that one. Down payment. Uh, so when you're buying owner-occupant properties, a lot of times you could do nothing down, USDA, VA, and there's probably some other local banks that are willing to do nothing down financing. Uh, there are down payment assistance programs where you can get, you know, basically they supplement your FHA loan and you only have to put 1% down. So, you know, what was a 3.5% loan now is only a 1% loan, although the rates on those tend to be pretty ugly. Uh, there are 3% down conventional loans. Those are usually a little bit higher rates and kind of expensive to get, although you can do them. Uh, there's a 3.5% down FHA loan, which you can use to buy duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes, as well as single family homes. Uh, they tend to have a PMI that doesn't go away. Um, and all this stuff is covered in the financing class. So if I'm going too fast for you, just go watch the two-hour class and you can pause that and do whatever you need to. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention about the nothing down, but the VA loan is also another one you could buy duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes with, as well as single family homes. So if you're going to do the duplex, triplex, or fourplex, in most cases, you're probably, and you're going to have sack, it's, it's probably going to be either a VA loan or an FHA loan that you're going to do for those. Uh, and then there's 5% down conventional. That's if you're doing a single family home and, you know, or one of those non-conforming duplexes, that's technically a single family home, but it looks really like a duplex. Uh, so do that. You're going to have private mortgage insurance if you put less than 20% down with some really unusual exceptions like uh, the VA loan, which doesn't have a doesn't have PMI and said they have an upfront funding insurance fee. Um, and there's a whole two-hour class on PMI, which I would recommend you listen to if you're doing any type of owner financing because it's got some really amazing stuff in there about how PMI works, different ways to handle it, which I'll cover here in a second. So. Uh, but the, I won't cover two hours worth. So go watch the two hour version of that. You can also buy down the interest rate to improve cash flow. I mean, one of the reasons why I think you're doing the house hacking is because you want to maximize cash flow. So do your number analysis and watch the class on buying down interest rates to improve your cash flow and see if it makes sense for you to invest extra money in terms of buy down instead of in terms of down payment. Uh, because if you want the cash flow, maybe you're doing it for a reason. So you could do that. It, it could improve cash flow that way. It could also improve debt to income. Uh, private mortgage insurance, some loans don't have PMI. For example, the VA loan with 0% down, they have a, an upfront insurance fee instead. Um, it's like the funding fee that they pay to the Veterans Administration. Then the Veterans Administration, Veterans Administration guarantees the loan. I think we did a whole two-hour class on VA financing. So if you are a veteran and you may qualify for VA loan, go watch the two-hour class on that. And if you put more than 20% down, 20% or more down, you don't have PMI either. Uh, there are three options to pay PMI, and so you'll want to do the math, and we go over this in the PMI class. You can either pay it monthly, you can pay it upfront in one lump sum payment, or you can ask the lender to voluntarily increase your interest rate, give you a credit, which the credit can then be used in order to pay that upfront fee. So really, we call that lender-paid PMI. By you taking a higher rate, the lender can get a credit to go ahead and pay the upfront PMI payment for you. That's sort of the three options for doing it. Uh, and you can go watch the class as to which one's the best. And we do the math and break it down for you and, and show you how to do all that. So it's definitely worthwhile. So see all the class on financing, but financing, you know, go study it for house hacking. It's important. Um, oh boy, to cover this or not to cover this. Oh boy. 
I'm not going to cover this. So I put this in here thinking I was going to have, I was going to have a short class. Apparently it wasn't a short class. Um, this, this is a, a, a page that uh, Jason sent over to me. Um, you got emailed it like a couple days ago. If you go back and look at your email, but Jason sent over the actual way that lenders calculate because of Fannie Mae guidelines. Um, it shows you how the lender actually calculates your debt to income ratio. And so if you're doing house hacking, you want to follow how they're doing it to see exactly how they're doing their calculation for DTI. And it may not be what you think it is. So that's what I'll say about this. Cause if you read the regs, it explains what they do, which may not be how you thought it was calculated. I know for me, it wasn't calculated exactly the way that I thought it was. So you'll want to go read through that. And it talks about regular rentals and stuff too, but because you're living in the property, it covers a very specific case. The top, the top two bullet points are for that. So, okay. Uh, so I'll pause for people that want to pause the video if they're watching this recording and now moving on. All right. This was, this is one of the uh, hot tub tips that Brian came up with. I never would have thought of this. It just never would have occurred to me. Uh, apparently Brian thinks that people that are renting out their property um, as house hackers, they don't pay their taxes. They just like accept cash under the table. I it never would have occurred to me that people did that probably would have occurred to Jason. Jason does tax stuff, but I, I apparently Jason and Brian think about this stuff all the time. And I it never would have occurred to me that people are not paying taxes on their money, the income they're getting. So report your income from house hacking rentals. So if you're going to live in the property and collect money from a roommate, you need to pay tax on that. It's not tax free. So, um, so why do you, why do you want to go pay taxes on it? Number one, because it's the law and tax fraud if you don't. So that's like a good reason to do it. Uh, the next reason is it helps you qualify for future loans. If you go and you have it on your tax return, you've been reporting it, you could use that income in order to qualify for future loans. So uh, yeah, it's, it's like a good reason to do it because it helps you. <laughs> so pay taxes on it. And then third is the, when you rent out your property, you get to actually depreciate the part that you've rented out. Um, and so you get to get the cash flow from depreciation. So you actually get a little bit of money for actually paying the taxes. And I haven't done the math. Maybe Jason can tell me from memory. But in some cases, I would imagine it's you get more in benefit than you actually pay in taxes. That's my thinking. But anyway, you got to go do the numbers to find out if that's true. Uh, but that's why you need to pay your taxes. And apparently that's a tip. Uh, Jason says, it was an issue in some past tax debt cases I represented. It can be a big deal orange jumpsuit big. So a lot of times I over-exaggerate. I tell, I tell people that you're going to go to jail if you don't do this tax thing, right? And Jason corrects me. He's like, yeah, well, they're not going to send you to jail for that one. You know, it's like a mistake. You have to pay a penalty and stuff. But apparently this one is big enough. It's orange jumpsuit big. So definitely pay your taxes, report your income for rental properties. It's a big deal. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I thought this was going to be like a 30 minute class. I don't know what happened here. Apparently 27 slides is two hours, maybe more. Uh, so fair housing, it, you know, fair housing is a, is a big deal. You know, you got a government entity um, trying to enforce law and they really want to make you pay. They really want to enforce it and, and make you comply. Right. And so uh, they have essentially unlimited resources and they can go after you if they think you're violating stuff. And they do. They actually have people calling and testing you to see if, you know, you treat somebody who calls in on your for rent ad um, one way. And if they call in, they've got a certain accent or something else. And, or they say something to you that you actually treat everybody the same way. So they are testing you on this occasionally randomly. Uh, so kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal. So um, fair housing, 
prohibitions. This is right from the fair housing, uh, the HUD website, fair housing uh, guidelines. So in the sale and rental of housing, I'm going to read you a couple of these because I think it's important. And then I'm going to tell you that house hackers have a, uh, a potential carve out. And so pay attention to this. So it is illegal discrimination to take any of the following actions because of race, color, religion, sex, disability, familial status, or national origin. And this is sort of the case that Brian was trying to make uh, in the last class when we talked about, should you manage your properties yourself? If you don't know all those things and know like what you are allowed and not allowed to do, you should probably not be managing your properties, which includes house hacking. You probably need to either become an expert at this and understand it and make sure you're compliant, uh, or you should probably have a professional do it who does know these laws and is going to kind of abide by them because uh, it could be a big deal for you. So here are the things you're not allowed to do. Um, refuse to rent or sell housing. So you can't refuse to rent to somebody based on race, color, religion, sex, disability, familial status, or national origin. You can't refuse to negotiate for housing. I'm just not going to negotiate with you. You can't otherwise make housing unavailable. Oh, it's not available anymore for you. Uh, set different terms, conditions, or privileges for sale or rental of a dwelling. Oh, for you, it's $1,200, but for anyone else, it's $800 a month. Uh, or for you, it's $600 a month. For everyone else, it's $800 a month. That's setting different terms, conditions. I like you because you are whatever. Female, male, that's sex. You know, color, race, disability, familial status. You've got kids, don't have kids, whatever it is. Uh, provide a person different housing services or facilities based on that. Uh, falsely deny that housing is available for inspection, sale, or rental. Oh, yeah, we, we, we rented that already based on how they sound on the phone or something they tell you. Uh, make, print, or publish any notice, statement, or advertisement with respect to the sale or rental of a dwelling that indicates any preference. I would prefer a female roommate because I'm female. I would, we, we only are accepting females. Uh, preference limitation or discrimination. Impose different sales prices or rental charges for the sale or rental of a dwelling because you're blank, you're all rich. So that's why we're going to charge you that. Uh, use different qualification criteria or applications or sale or rental standards or procedures such as income standards, application requirements, application fees, credit analysis, sale or rental approval procedures or other requirements. You can't evict a tenant or a tenant's guest based on any of those things. You can't harass a person based on any of those things. You can't fail or delay performance of maintenance or repairs. Oh, because it's you, yeah, we're not coming out there and fixing that. Or it's going to take a lot longer. You can't limit privileges, services, or facilities of a dwelling. You can't discourage the purchase or rental of a dwelling. Oh, you shouldn't even apply. We, we, yeah, you may, want, may not want to apply because of this. Nope. You can't assign a person to a particular building or neighborhood or section of a building or neighborhood. Oh, because you're blank, you'll need to live downstairs. Okay. Uh, Jason says, it should be noted a 2012 court case found that the fair housing. Um, so I'm going to get to that, Jason. Jason just stole my thunder. And it's actually not what you just said. No worries. Uh Continuing on, for profit, persuade, or try to persuade home buyers to sell their homes by suggesting that people of a particular protected characteristic are about to move into the neighborhood. They call that blockbusting. That's why the blockbuster company went out of business. 
refuse to provide or discriminate in terms of conditions of homeowners insurance because of the race, color, religion, sex, disability, familial status, or national origin of the owner and or occupants of a dwelling. You cannot deny access to or membership in any multiple listing service or real estate brokers organization. And they have some a link there for some other um, examples of fair housing. Now, now that I gave you like all the prohibitions about like your restrictions and stuff, um, I, I'm sure a lot of you are like nervous because you're like, hey, I am a, as an example, male or female, and I really don't want to have people of the other gender living in my property with me because it makes me feel uncomfortable or something like that. I don't know, whatever it is. Potentially problematic. So apparently there are fair housing exemptions and I'm quoting exactly what it says here. And I'm telling you, you need to go and dig into this and research. It is not enough for you to have heard what I said on this podcast or this, this, this episode or this recording or the live thing or whatever we're doing here. You need to go research it yourself. You need to go talk to an attorney and make sure that you meet one of these exemptions, exemptions, exceptions, whatever you want to call it. Okay, so here's what it says. The Fair Housing Act covers most housing, period. In very limited circumstances, very limited circumstances, the act exempts owner-occupied buildings with no more than four units, single-family houses sold or rented by the owner, can't hire a property manager, sold or rented by the owner without the use of an agent and housing operated by religious organizations and private clubs that limit occupancy to members. Now, I will, I will give you, you need to research this on your own. There's a, a web address on here for some fair housing stuff too. But I will say one more thing about this. The part of the limited circumstances is how many properties you own. So, if you own a certain number of properties or more, it doesn't matter if you are owner-occupied building with no more than four units uh, and you are the one that's kind of doing the renting. You, you lose that exemption after a certain point. So go research it. Talk to your attorney. This is like pro tip. The, you, the, the rules about fair housing are ugly. There is a carve out in very, very limited circumstances for you to kind of not do this. And now... As a general rule, though, I wouldn't use this to kind of like flagrantly just ignore all the rules. This is sort of like where it makes sense. Maybe you enforce, maybe you kind of like let it go for some reason, but try to comply as much as you can, in my opinion. I, I, I think you're flirting with fire if you're just like willy nilly, I'm ignoring all this stuff. And so be super careful. Okay. Um, I'll add one other thing here. You should also have in your lease a clause to allow you to terminate your lease with roommates with notice. You don't want to be in a situation where you start to feel uncomfortable living in your own property and you have a year-long lease with your roommate and no way to get them out. You should actually have the right, talk to your attorney, have them draft it up, put it in your contract, whatever you need to do um, in order to be able to cancel your lease with your roommate with a reasonable amount of notice to get them out so that you are not stuck with a roommate for a long period of time. Uh, Nick also says, according to our property manager, it is no longer acceptable to use the term master bedroom, bathroom, and listings. Yeah, you're, you're, I, th I think we're not supposed to use that. I think we're supposed to say primary. Uh, primary bedroom, bathroom. So there you go. All right. Um, and I think this may be the penultimate slide or getting close to it. So we're, we're going to be good on time. Uh, upgraded finishes and furnishings. So it should occur to you 
that if you are having roommates in your own property or renting a furnished unit, but this is more so to uh, having roommates, uh, if you have really nice furniture, you know, you pimp out your place and it looks really, really good. You have high end stuff, you know, really big, nice TV, really nice couches, really nice, you know, um, you know, granite countertops and your finishes are really good and the house looks amazing. And it's like super, super high end that you may be able to get higher rent for that. And you may be able to get, I don't know, like more demand for your units. However, realize you might also have higher maintenance. So it's something you need to weigh, but if you're going to live there and you're going to have nice stuff anyway, just realize that you might be able to get premiums for that. I know some clients that are taking this approach where they're really pimping out their place and they're getting really good roommates and getting really good numbers for their roommates by doing that. Okay, and then here we go. Uh, so once you do this one property, once you decide to house hack and you're getting your rent on this and, and you decide, you know, this, this is working out great. I love this idea. I'm able to collect some extra income. I think this is the next thought process that you should go through. You should say, okay, if I had this property paid off, um, how much income would I be able to generate with this property once it is free and clear? And I think you look at that number and you ask yourself, is that enough for financial independence? You know, maybe you include some other sources of financial independence, like your stock portfolio, your bonds, whatever else you got there, any other rental properties you have. But is that enough for you to achieve financial independence for you? Is that, is it, does it kind of like hit your minimum or does it hit your ideal? You know, does it hit two times your ideal? Does it, does it kind of like exceed that? You know, where are you in the phases of financial independence if you kind of saw that class? And if it's not enough, then I think you should consider repeating the process and moving into the next property, maybe keeping roommates there and adding one roommate to replace you in order to still stay compliance with occupancy rules. Or maybe then you, um, you know, move into a, bring your roommates with you and you move into a brand new property. And so, you know, those are, are things to consider. That way, when you have both the properties or three properties or four properties, whatever it is paid off, do you then hit your goal of financial independence? And so, Think about it. If one is good and it's been really good to you, you know, for a while, maybe you should repeat this and kind of like add Nomad to the house hacking experience and kind of do that. And so I have a class on here called Your Second Nomad Property, where we talk about what happens if you stop when you do one property, which is basically, you know, just house hacking with one property, or what happens if you add the second, what's the difference in the math, what's the difference in, you know, a whole bunch of stuff, and it talks about the process going from one to two, it's very specific one to two, that's what the whole class is about, and uh, you can go ahead and find that, I think it's on the podcast, maybe it's not, and then it's also on the website, so uh, that's what I got about that, so those were my 10 tips, plus two bonus tips, any questions, for stuff. Um, there's a discussion going on about that uh, master bedroom bathroom thing going on. Uh, Jason says he disagrees with something I said, but he won't get into it. I'd like to encourage house actors to read the Ninth Circuit decision in the relevant case and discuss it with your attorney. Is that the case about the uh, ability for you to um, uh, kind of like not go to the fair housing, not not uh, having exemption to the fair housing stuff? Is that what you're saying? Talk about Jason. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what part of it you don't agree with, but there are very limited number of units owned is irrelevant. Uh, that is, I actually looked this up a couple of years ago. That is not true. Number of units owned is completely relevant. So that was a thing I did look up. And now it wasn't for this presentation. Yeah. Jason seems to think it's not relevant, but talk to your attorney. Um, I, my understanding is that there, there is a, the exemption is for if you own less than a certain number of units. 
And there was a long discussion about if the property's in an LLC, do I technically own them and some other stuff that went on. So we dug deep into this at the time. And um, when I found, I found some stuff that suggested that it was a certain number of units. But again, talk to your attorney. There's different opinions about this stuff out there. Again, like I said before, at asset protection, right? Uh, don't rely on a free webinar to operate your business. <laughs> Think of this as a tip-off that, oh, maybe I should research this. Maybe I should get legal advice and, and do all that. Yeah. Jason says it's uh, it's actually a, course, a court precedent, not a exemption for fair housing. So, yeah, it should be interesting. I don't know. I don't know what the, the deal is. So, anyway, go find out from your turn. Uh, John, if you have your hand up, ask a question in the chat window, but there's nothing to raise your hand about. Mike says, this is awesome. Thank you. You're very welcome. So that's all I got for the tips. Look at that timing. I, I thought, I literally thought this was going to be two shorts. So I'm glad we got a full two hours out of it. Uh, hopefully that was helpful for you guys with the house hacking. Um, glad I could be of service. Awesome class. You're welcome. John says, glad I went long. <laughs> uh, you're very welcome. Very welcome. Very welcome. Any other things for you guys? It's, it's crazy, right? Like, I don't even know what I'm going to teach for the class. I come up with a class topic. Next thing you know, people are like, yeah, that was pretty good information. I'm glad I came for that one. That's that good. Awesome. You guys are very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're all welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, anything else? Any final questions before I sign off for the night? Mike says, for sure, you're killing it. <laughs> oh man i appreciate that thank you thank you thank you thank you okay anything else last keep the beard going yeah see someone likes my beard this is like a month you can go back and look at the videos kansas says awesome as always you're very welcome any final questions otherwise i'm gonna go i finished pole dark so tammy and i are gonna go watch something else i'm not sure what we got to watch but uh, we finished five seasons of the Poldark series from PBS. If you're into like Jane Austen sort of stuff, that's pretty good. Tammy kept trying to tell me it was a business like series, you know, like the gold rush and, uh, you know, doing businesses. It really wasn't, but I had a lot of that in there, but it wasn't crazy. So, all right. On that note, uh, make sure you reach out to Brian. Tell me, hope he feels better. Tell him uh, don't stay in the hot tub for three hours anymore. Tell him. He's going to get cooked. I don't know. Send him some article or cite something about how dangerous that is. Then I won't have to go do three hours with him next time. So, all right, guys, if no one has questions, which I guess you don't, I will go. Thank you all for coming. I will talk to y'all soon. Bye for now. Have a great night. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Nomad Real Estate Investing Podcast, produced by James Orr Real Estate Services in conjunction with the Northern Colorado Real Estate Investor Group. Help others find what you're already enjoying by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. For additional information, please visit us at jamesor.com. For questions, suggestions, or other feedback, please email us at jores at jamesor.com.